We ready? Back there? All right. Welcome, everyone, to our class this evening. Thanks for coming. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have again to study the Word of God and to uh, seek to apply what you have said to the church at Corinth to our own church and our own situation. We pray we might learn to live in a way that's pleasing to you and, and what we read might uh, correct our conduct, cause us to grow in spiritual truths and in holiness. And we pray that what we learn will be of value in the days ahead and that we will be the kind of Christians that will be pleasing to you and that uh, you will guide and direct us as we study the word that the Spirit will enable us to make proper application to our own situations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians and we're finally going to, Lord willing, finish this section up tonight. Remember, <laughs> remember we uh, said that we're dealing with uh, really in 1 Corinthians a series of problems. And 1 Corinthians is divided into two halves as far as problems are concerned. The first half, the first six chapters are problems with the church that Paul has been informed about. That is, the Corinthians have been corresponding with Paul. We know that. And they have, uh, in chapter 7, they have, we'll see, they wrote a letter to Paul and said, Paul, what about this? What about this? Or we, we don't, you know. So they mention issues that he'll have to deal with in chapter 7. But before he gets there, he deals with issues in the church that he has heard from reliable sources about. They haven't mentioned them. They haven't brought these up. And some of them are really serious. Chapter 5 will be a question of incest in the church. And they haven't said, hey, Paul, we got this real problem. Of, they haven't done anything about it. So we're still dealing with uh, issues that Paul has heard about that are sinful and problematic in the church. And the first one were these divisions or differences of opinion in the church and people are kind of forming uh, little groups, opinions about certain leaders. And so it's a problem for them because they're in Corinth, which is a very pagan culture. It's a very, uh, you know, no, it's not a Christian culture. This is the introduction of Christianity. So they're thinking, they're thinking like the way they grew up. And that thinking is Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek religion. And that's a long way from Christianity. And so uh, they're, they're taking the gospel in, but the tendency is no matter where you go, if you went as a missionary to some country, that, some place that's never had the gospel, that's what you'd have to deal with, these cross-cultural issues. You'd have Christianity has a certain culture, has a certain morality, and you would go into a culture that might, that might be totally different, you know. And uh, uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's a problem. You've got to try to deal with that. You've got to try to uh, 
bring the people along, make them see, okay, here is what the Bible teaches about right or wrong. And Paul is trying to do that here. And so they, we said, first of all, they've misunderstood the gospel message. They have looked at it incorrectly as though it's just another one of these Greek philosophies that's to be admired. And you had various philosophers and speakers and people that you were attracted to and so forth. And so they were attracted to Paul, Apollos, and then we had that mention of Peter. And then uh, this led to a misunderstanding of the gospel ministry, what these, what these people are doing. And so we saw last time, you remember, Paul was talking about what is the role of leaders like Apollos and Paul. They're not like, you know, political candidates today. You know, they're not like... <laughs> people who get excited about certain individuals and follow them and, you know, that kind of thing. And he says these uh, gospel workers, like he and Apollos, are human leaders who work for God. They're actually responsible to God. They work for Him. And he says, and that's what he's been starting off with in 4, 1 through 5, human leaders are directly responsible to God alone. And so he says, uh, I don't judge myself or my success by what you think or what you do, I, I, I'm, it's all dependent on what God thinks and God's uh, evaluation of me. And I don't, you know, he says, I don't even evaluate myself. It's really, it's going to come down to the judgment seat of Christ and we'll see what God says about what I've done. So you're judging things before the time. And so when we get to chapter 4, verse 6, that we started last time, Paul is closing this out with kind of a, what I call here a personal appeal. Paul wants to appeal to his own example in contrast to the kind of person they would think would be a great gospel leader. You know, the closest thing we have to this today is what's called the health and wealth gospel, where in the health and wealth gospel you know, the person you're attracted to, the person who is, is the person who's wealthy and healthy and, <laughs> and has, you know, it's, 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 it's considered in that portion of the gospel uh, ministry, in that part of Christianity, it's considered great if the guy has 10 cars and five houses and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so Paul is going to appeal to himself and say, here's what a gospel minister really goes through, and here's what it's like. Uh, and so he starts off in 4.6. Uh, we saw last time Paul's reasons for appealing to his own example. And he says, you know, I've been, I've been mainly dealing... My, my, the main issue here is between me and Apollos, mainly. Now, remember we said he doesn't fault Apollos. Apollos was this... Uh, uh, man from, you know, he was uh, ultimately from Alexandria in Egypt. That's where he came from. And next, this message this Sunday in church, we'll hear about Apollos. Because <laughs> we're at Acts 18, we're at the end of Acts 18, we'll hear about Apollos. And how that, remember I told you last time that Paul goes to Ephesus, he takes Priscilla and Aquila, we saw that in church last Sunday. But Paul will leave and then Apollos will come to Ephesus. 
And he's a dynamic fella. He's from Alexandria. He's been trained in rhetoric, how to speak. Very good speaker, very eloquent. Apparently, the Apostle Paul is not like that exactly. Obviously, he's a brilliant guy, but he wasn't trained in that kind of thing. And so they're contrasting Paul and Apollos and saying, oh, which one is the bet, which one is really. And so Paul says, uh, I've really been, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, uh, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one, like Apollos, over against the other, that might be Paul. So uh, he says, basically, uh, I want you to learn you know, from this saying, don't go beyond what is written. And we said, we suggested that that has the idea, you know, you should live according to Scripture. You should, you should base your opinions and your evaluations based on Scripture. And uh, then he says in verse 7, uh, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? What, you, what, what if you did receive? Why do you boast as though you, you did not? Um, so the problem here is they're rather puffed up. They're rather, they think really, rather highly of themselves. They have this very high opinion. They, 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 they don't understand, you know, what it, in some ways, they don't understand what it really means to be a believer in Christ. Uh, they, they do have this very proud and puffed up opinion. They think of themselves as being quite superior. Apparently they think of themselves in some ways superior to the Apostle Paul. Because he's this Jew, you know, who comes into town. He's got the gospel, but, you know, he doesn't fit their ideal of a great leader, you know, of, of a great person to follow in that sense. Apollos is more, he, he fits our ideal more. But as I said, remember, Paul doesn't fall to Apollos. Apollos is just Apollos. <laughs> he came with the gifts he had. He taught the people at Corinth, as we'll see in Acts 18, uh, he didn't really do anything wrong. It's the evaluation the Corinthians place on that. That's the problem. So uh, Paul, as we were talking last time in 4, 8 through 13, is now going to contrast himself, the apostle, with them and their view of things. And he's going to say, here's what, here's what an apostle is like Here's what's important. Remember in verse 8, he said, he said and, and he's going to start by, uh, uh, he's going to start by uh, uh, um, sarcastically speaking to them. We said it was, we called it irony last time. Uh, he says in total irony, sarcasm, Already you have all your want. Now, it's just the opposite, remember? The irony is, you're, it's just the opposite. You know, but that's what they think of themselves. Oh, we've arrived. We've arrived. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. So this is how they think of themselves. So Paul is uh, using this form of sarcasm or satire, uh, and he says, how I wish you really had begun to reign. 
we wish we were in the kingdom, you know, <laughs> but we're not in the millennial kingdom. You know, we're not reigning. We're not arrived. Uh, this is not the time for that kind of thinking. And so uh, that last, uh, that, that next paragraph after irony there says, having received the Spirit, the Corinthians feel they have already arrived. For them, spiritually means spirituality means to be transported into a whole new sphere of existence where they are above the earthly and especially fleshly existence of others. Thus Paul says, already you have all you want. Not only do they boast in what is a gracious gift, but they think they possess the fullness of their gifts, including wisdom. I mean, we all have blessings and gifts from God, but we have to be careful not to think that somehow they're due to us. <laughs> it's all of grace. Nothing is deserved, you know. Nothing is earned. So Paul says, already you have all you want. They think they have arrived. Secondly, Paul says, already you've become rich. This is another figure of speech, a metaphor for spiritual giftedness. They think they have all, they're rich in spiritual giftedness. Thirdly, Paul says, you've begun to reign. In other words, without us means without our having a share in it. The final sentence brings things into perspective. How I wish you had begun to reign, that would mean that the kingdom that we all await for has in fact come. Now we see the truth of the situation in verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels, as well as to human beings. I say here, Paul has not, in fact, entered the time of reigning and neither by implication have the Corinthians. First, Paul sets forth in its starkest form the evidence that he and other apostles have not yet begun to reign. To do so, he uses the figure of those condemned to die in the arena. When Paul says the apostles were put on display at the end of the procession, he's using an image, an illustration, drawn from the Roman triumph in which victorious generals paraded defeated captives through the streets in a victory celebration that included not only his armies, but the booty as well. So, in, you know, Rome, Rome and all, almost all ancient civilizations up until 1500, 1600, they, they got big, they, they became great countries by violence and war, attacking other people, stealing their stuff. Rome wasn't some great capitalistic, capitalistic society that invented things and made things and sold things. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was that they attacked other people. They, they, they conquered land. They made, that, they made these people pay taxes and pay tributes and stuff like that. Rome, the city of Rome got very wealthy because of that. And so uh, Rome was famous for its armies and its generals. And what generals wanted most of all was after their great victory, and there's whole histories of these, you know, great generals like Julius Caesar who defeated the Celts in Gaul in France. When they came back to Rome, if they were usually given a triumph, a celebration, a parade. You know, if you look back at 
uh, I was looking at some stuff on World War II, you know, you look back at, and we had this, I think we had this after Desert Storm, after we defeated the first Iraq War, you know, but, you know, when soldiers came back to America, same thing in the Civil War, they celebrated, there were parades down in New York City, you know, and confetti and, and all those kind of things, you know. Uh, you were celebrating these great victories and so forth. Well, that's what these were. These were triumphs. And so uh, these are just images of what they look like. You've got uh, a chariot with the general uh, with this sort of crown, uh, <laughs> someone holding this, a slave holding this behind him. You know, this is what we read about. This is a picture from a film. Uh, carrying the booty in, you know, you have slaves or others carrying what they captured. You know, when they took these cities, they would capture gold and all kinds of stuff. They'd bring that back to Rome like that. And at the very end of the procession, you would have a lot of slaves. Uh, you know, when, when the Romans eventually, in 70 AD, when they when they capture Jerusalem, when the Jews revolt in 66 A.D., uh, after our time here, this is, uh, we're talking about uh, 55 right now, A.D. 55, when Paul is writing this, 56. So just in a few years, 10 years, <laughs> the Jews are going to revolt in Jerusalem, and so uh, the Roman armies are going to come in, the, the legions are going to come in, and... Uh, they're ultimately going to defeat the Jews and they're going to uh, destroy the temple and, you know, tear, tear down most of Jerusalem and so forth. And uh, so when they did that, uh, they, 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 they took all these Jews captive. At least 100,000, according to most statistics, they took 100,000 captives. And they sold them. And that's, that's how you kind of get rich as a, as a general. You, you, you have these slaves and you auction them off. And you make money, you know, from doing that and so forth. And so, uh, so these, are, these are slaves that are brought back, you know, and captives and so forth. And, uh, I mean, half of the, half the Roman Empire was slaves. More than half of the city of Rome were slaves. Uh, so um, Paul is saying, you know, that's what really we apostles are kind of like. You know, we're not the most exalted, esteemed people, you know, who are thought highly of. We're, we're kind of like the worst thought of people. They just, people despise us. They don't look favorably upon us. Um, Paul uses this same image. He'll use it in 2 Corinthians about uh, this same kind of image of we're, we're, we're in the procession. We're last in the procession. We're like the slaves. So we're not, he says, we, we apostles are not like people who have places of honor. Uh, we're not sitting in the box seats or anything like that. Uh, but the Corinthians are, think of themselves like that. They think of themselves, they're very proud. They think of themselves as they have wisdom, they have eloquence. Uh, the truth is Paul is like one condemned to a die in the arena. So when they brought these slaves back, often they would put some in the arena and they would have games, you know, celebrating the victories and, and uh, sell others off and so forth. Um, 
And so the truth is, Paul says he's like one, really like one who is condemned to die in the arena. So it's not the, it's not the, the way the Corinthians are thinking about, uh, correctly thinking about the gospel and so forth. Verse 10, for we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. Now again, this is, you know, sarcasm. The opposite's true. Oh, we are, you are fool, we are fools for Christ, but you're so wise. You're so wise. We're weak, but you're strong. You were honored, but we're dishonored. I say Paul now sarcastically contrasts the Corinthians and himself and other apostles. The truth is the majority of the Corinthians are not among the wise, powerful, and honored, but they're acting as if they are. Um, so the Corinthians are acting like those who don't belong to God. They're acting like unsaved people. And that's a problem with the Corinthians. As we saw in chapter 3, they're carnal. They're, Paul accepts their profession of faith. You know, he, is, they, they, he assumes they're Christians. But they're not acting like it. Uh, they're acting very worldly, very carnal. Um, and they're, identify, they're identifying with people that don't belong to God. They're identifying with unsaved people who are, you know, in the eyes of the world are dishonored and despised. Verse 11, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands, with our own hands. We are, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I say Paul now abandons uh, sarcasm for straight talk and begins a catalog of his, su his sufferings. Verses 11 through 13 spell out the dishonor that attends Paul's apostolic ministry. We can sort of divide this maybe into three parts here. First, a list of six common items expressing the ministry's missionaries' deprivations and ill treatment. We go hungry thirsty, we're in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work with our own hands. Then a set of three contrasts expressing the apostle's uh, responses to his own ill treatment. How does he respond? When we are cursed, we're, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. And a final extreme metaphor of humiliation. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Um, we who follow Christ in these ways, Paul says, do not receive the accolades of the worldly wise. To the contrary, we are to them the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Um, the contrast is the Corinthians think of themselves differently as rich and powerful and honored. It's a problem for us because nobody likes to be hated. <laughs> no one likes to be disliked. And, you know, and, and often Christians feel like, you know, that we should, people should feel better about us than they do. <laughs> you know, and, and often they do feel kindly toward us, you know. If we're kind towards them, they'll, they'll feel kind. But ultimately, you know, what we believe is it totally at odds with, you know, the natural, with the unsaved person. We're, we're just, everything we say is, everything we believe. No one, no unsaved person wants to believe they're a sinner and they're condemned and that's what we're telling them ultimately. So they're not ultimately going to love that message. They're going to dislike us and hate us for that 
you know, we don't go out of our way to be disliked, but we shouldn't be surprised if we face opposition, like the Apostle Paul says here. That shouldn't surprise us uh, in that sense. So Paul, finally here in the last verses of chapter 4, he appeals to his own authority as their spiritual father. I say the argument that began in 110 is now finished, but Paul is not. The most delicate issue still remains. In light of all that's been said, how is he to reestablish his authority over the Corinthians? Remember we said that Paul has in chapter 4 said, uh, you know, we're just servants. You know, we're, we're, we, we're just servants. We serve you and so forth. And we're stewards, you know, but we're, we, God, God is, the, is our master and he commands us, but we're here to serve you. And so he's trying to uh, remove, to get them to see that, you know, Paul and, and Apollos are not these exalted superstars. But at the same time, he is an apostle and Christians have to listen to an apostle. So he, he does have authority over them, you know. Uh, he does have authority over them, but he's there to serve them. You know, it's like an, a pastor in a church. Uh, pastors, elders have authority, but they're not dictators. You know, they're there to serve the people in the church, you know. So it's a delicate balance sometimes, you know. Uh, and that's what Paul is, is, is facing here. He, he, he's got to reassert his authority. He established the church. They've got to listen to what he says. There's no Bible to appeal to here except the Old Testament. <laughs> There's no New Testament yet. They don't have any books of the New Testament. They can't say, well, Paul, I'm just going to follow the New Testament here. I don't care what. Well, there's no New Testament. They're just the Apostle Paul, and he is speaking from God. And what he says is gospel truth. So they've got to listen to him. That's the only place to go. I mean, if they don't listen to him, they're on the wrong track. So uh, he's got to reestablish and say, listen, I do have the right to command your obedience. I'm not trying to be a dictator or an overlord, but I've got to command your obedience. So Paul changes the illustration, I say here. The imagery of the father and the children will have all the ingredients. So he's going to change the imagery here from a servant to a father and children. He's the father, they're the children. And that works because he is the founder of the church, so he's like a father, you know. And because he is the father, he's going to take certain steps. He's going to first admonish them, you know, warn them. He's going to urge them to change their behavior. That's what a parent does. You, you, you admonish the child. You warn the child. You urge them to change their behavior. Instruct them how to change their behavior. But if that fails, <laughs> there's only left is discipline. And Paul will say, that's what I will have to do if you don't change your ways in the last, the last few verses of this chapter. So Paul's point in this final section is that right thinking is not enough. Uh, correct, belief, correct belief is not enough. The gospel has to result in appropriate behavior changes. Um, 
if we really believe the truth, it's going to affect the way we act, the way we behave. So Paul will say that you need to imitate me. You need to imitate my behavior, which means to return to a way of life in Christ Jesus, he'll say. And therefore, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, he'll say, to instruct you and explain things to you, and then I'm going to come to you. Let's see that. Verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, to admonish you as my dear children. There's the change of illustration. I'm the father, you're the children. In light of the irony and sarcasm of the preceding paragraph, how can Paul now deny he was intending to shame them? It seems like he was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he had some pretty harsh words for them. And the very fact that uh, he denies that, you know, it really means that they should have been ashamed. But he says, that wasn't my purpose. You, you should be sh ashamed of your behavior, no question. But my purpose in doing this was not to shame you primarily. Uh, you know, uh, and if you don't feel ashamed, they're really beyond hope, but they, they should feel ashamed. But, but my reason, he said, for, what's, for, for what I've written here uh, is to admonish you or warn you as a father warns his children. I'm trying to correct your behavior. That's why I'm doing this. I'm not just lambasting you for the purpose of some satisfaction for me. I'm trying to get you to change your behavior. Because if you don't behave according to your profession, there's a question about whether your profession is genuine. That's a question we face all the time in, 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 our, in our lives and in the church, you know. If Christians don't live according to the gospel they have professed, there's always a doubt. Is this person really a genuine believer? Verse 15, For even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So having called them his dear children, in verse 14, Paul proceeds to remind them, that he's their father because he gave birth, gave them birth in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Because he came, preached the gospel, he's like a father. He also emphasizes that his relationship with them is unique in this regard. He's their only father. We might translate the first part of verse 15 this way. Even though you may end up having countless thousands of guardians in Christ, at least you don't have many fathers. So he's not trying to put down the Corinthians... He's not trying to put down Apollos. He's not trying to put down the Corinthians' other teachers. You know, Paul has spoken favorably of Apollos and others. But he's trying to distinguish his relationship to them from others. He has a unique relationship, different from Apollos, or different from Peter, in that he was the one who came and preached the gospel, established the church, uh, and so, therefore, uh, he's responsible for this church. And they're responsible to listen to him as the apostle who established this church. It's a relationship like that of a father. I mean, if you're a child, you might go to your uncle's house. And, you know, as a child, 
I mean, I went to my uncle's house and my aunt's house and sometimes they would admonish me, but I, it wasn't quite the same thing as my father and my mother, you know, that's, that's a little different. So these other teachers, you know, they have a relationship, but not like the father-mother, not like the father relationship. So he has special authority and that's what he's trying to do. And so he says, verse 16, therefore, because I have this relationship, I urge you to imitate me. This verse now takes the father-child imagery a step further. Since the Corinthians have but one father, Paul, who gave them birth in Christ Jesus through the gospel, he urges them to imitate him. So this term imitate means to internalize and live out the model that's been set before them. And the immediate context is those verses we just read. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. Here's the model that you're to emulate. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Slander, we kindly answer kindly. So there's the model that I want you to imitate, you know. Um, this is the, the model of Christ. This is what we think of when we think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus right now. He's writing this letter and he says, I'm sending Timothy, I've sent Timothy to you, who is a faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So nothing unique here about what Paul's teaching the Corinthians, what he teaches everywhere. Paul's concern of the Corinthians' behavior expresses in the preceding verses, especially his desire that they follow his example, is now given as the reason for Paul having sent Timothy to them. And so Paul's one task is to remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus so they can imitate the Apostle Paul. So we're talking about Paul's moral character. Um... um the, the transformed kind of life that he expects the Corinthians to live. Um, and so what Paul is going to, what Timothy is going to teach you, he says, it's not something unique just to you. It's what we teach in all the churches. This is what, this is the kind of behavior that's expected of all Christians, not just you. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. Now see, there, remember the problem here is that Paul comes to, uh, to Ephesus, Paul comes to Corinth in Acts 18 and he spends a year and a half there but then he goes to Ephesus, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila he goes back to Jerusalem, back to Antioch he comes back to Ephesus and he spends three years in Ephesus so that's a long time you know, <laughs> for the apostle come, to come there and establish the church and then he's in Ephesus for three years before he ever goes back to Corinth again. That's, that's a long time. So he says, you know, you act like I'm not coming back. Well, you know, there's some, some reason maybe for that. In this context of his own anticipated coming, Paul concludes that the long this long section beginning in 110 by sounding a warning directly at the troublemakers in the church. The words, some of you have become arrogant indicate that at least two things. First, the trouble that Paul has been having comes from within the church itself, not from outside agitators. 
But that's different when we get to 2 Corinthians, or if you get to 2 Corinthians, you'll see there are outside agitators. But there's no indication of that here. It's from inside the church. Some in the church are decidedly anti-Paul. Second, although the entire church has been infected, probably in varying degrees, the instigators of the trouble are a smaller group among them. They have had considerable influence in the entire church so that the majority are on the side of the malcontents or at least are being influenced by them. Now at the end of the argument, Paul singles out the ringleaders and threatens them with his own coming. So these are the people who have despised, maybe that's too strong, Paul's authority, have rejected in some sense. They have, they have questioned his theology. And to the question, and to the, and, and, and to the uh, degree that the whole church, the church as a whole, has tolerated or adopted this unchristian behavior, they're at fault. I mean, it's true that there are these sort of people, some of you, but, you know, the church has unfortunately tolerated this. So they're at fault for tolerating this. So the letter is addressed to the whole church. Paul's addressing this to the whole church. The church has got to do something here. And you'll say what that, at least, you'll start saying what that is in chapter 5, particularly, church discipline. Um, so there's a tension between the sum of these people and the whole church. Paul adds the qualifying clause, as if I were not coming to you. His failure to return after some years, at least three years, has caused some of them, well, of course, it hadn't been three years yet. You know, it's probably been a year and a half since, but he's going to stay on at Ephesus. Uh, as if he were not coming back at all. Verse 19, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. Well, the Lord wasn't willing, <laughs> as we know. It wasn't very soon. And then I will find out not only how these, thing, how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The sending of Timothy at this letter might have the force of playing right into the hands of the arrogant. So Paul quickly affirms his own plans to return to, the, to Corinth. That is the fact that he's sending Timothy and he's not come, might play into these hands. Well, this guy's not coming back, you know. He's, he was here, but he's gone. So he's sending Timothy, and he says, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm planning to come. The details of this plan are given in 16, 5 through 9. That passage also indicates that very soon is a relative term. He says later in chapter 16 of this book, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia... Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permit. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So Paul says, I'm right in the middle of a tremendous ministry here at Ephesus. Um, and uh, 
I can't leave right now, you know, so I'm going to send Timothy. Now, we know that what he ultimately did, I'll just show you what he ultimately did. Now, here, here's Ephesus, the dot there. You know, this is the province of Asia, but modern Turkey today. And you see across the Aegean, there's Corinth. And uh, so in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, we'll get there eventually on Sunday morning, but this Sunday we'll be talking about Apollos and his coming to Ephesus and so forth. And then uh, uh, chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul's in Ephesus as he's writing this, but in chapter 19, Paul will come to Ephesus and there's where he spends the three years, chapter 19. But then in chapter 20, when we get there, it'll say Paul set out for Macedonia. So Paul, you know, is going to do what he said here in verse uh, 19. I will come to you very soon. Well, it's not very, very soon, but he was hoping to. So Paul will set out for Macedonia in Acts chapter 20. And, of course, Macedonia is where Philippi, Thessalonica is. And then it says in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 2, 3, Paul finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Well, that's Corinth. Greece is Corinth here. So he does get there eventually. Um, he does get there eventually. Um, so, um, I say here, uh, the details of this plan are given in 16, 5 through 9. That, that passage indicates very soon is a relative term. He will come as soon as it is possible for him to do so. The emphasis is on the certainty of the visit, not its immediacy. In any case, all such plans are contingent on if the Lord's willing. The reason for the emphasis on the certainty of his coming is expressed in the words, then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. When he returns, will they have merely talk or will they be able to demonstrate the power of God in their worldly wisdom? So these people claim to have the Spirit. Will they have evidence of that? That's the crucial matter. And what is that evidence? The evidence of the work of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit to save and sanctify. The power of the Spirit is seen in the church when we have people saved and people sanctified or people growing spiritually. The church is moving forward and making progress. That's where we see it's not in, you know, people falling down the aisles and speaking in tongues and things like that. No, it's in the demonstration of the work of the Spirit in people's lives, real change. Uh, that kind of thing. That's what the gospel's all about, you know. Uh, and in light of what we'll see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul doesn't have to fear, you know, <laughs> have much to fear because these people who are opposed to him 
are not demonstrating the power of the Spirit to save and sanctify. What they're demonstrating is allowing sin to go, just terrible sin, to be accepted in the church. Verse 21, for what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? With one further use one, one further use of the father-child illustration, Paul concludes with the threat of discipline, which the church is in no danger of exercising among themselves, as what immediately follows makes clear. What do you prefer, Paul asks? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? So he says, do I have to come like a father and mete out, you know, discipline? Uh, now, the apostles, the apostle can do that. <laughs> apostles had powers and abilities, uh, you know, to, to inflict real punishment, physical punishment uh, upon people. So uh, this is no empty threat. So do you want me to come and have to discipline you? Or do you want me to, do you, do you want to allow this letter in Timothy's coming to serve as a proper inducement to correcting your behavior. And, and I'd love for that to be the case because then I can come with a gentle spirit, in love with a gentle spirit. But nevertheless, he says, something's got to be done about the situation in Corinth. So with these words, those final words, we come to the very end here of 110 through 421. And even though at times Paul seems to have been... Uh, weaving in and out of, you know, several topics. Paul has one main concern in this section, and that is their fascination with worldly wisdom that's allowed them uh, not only to boast, to take this, un, this pride, this boasting in themselves, but also to oppose Paul in many ways and oppose the real truth of the gospel. So Paul has had arguments that go this way and that way, reshaping their under, trying to reshape their understanding of the gospel and the ministry, Christian ministry. And so Paul says, you have no choice but to heed what I'm saying. Their, their, their behavior, their theology needs shaping up. Uh, and so Paul says, you know, I hope this letter will do the trick. But otherwise, if not, if Timothy can't correct things, I'll come to you and correct things. Um, now, if we go ahead and look ahead, 2 Corinthians has got other issues that Paul is worried about. But it looks like from what we can read in between the lines that Paul was ultimately effective in correcting the church and setting it straight. Uh, when Paul gets to Corinth, he writes a letter to the Romans. And he sort of indicates in that letter that he's had a very positive reception at Corinth. So we think Paul was able to correct things and get things straightened out. So we're talking now about the next major division, problems communicated by common rumor. This is chapter 5 and 6. Now that's similar to what we saw before because Paul's getting information from the house of Chloe and so forth, remember? 
But he actually mentions here common rumor. I say with 5.1, Paul now turns to a new problem at Corinth, a case of incest that's being either tolerated or condoned within the church. So remember, in the previous section, Paul has urged the Corinthians to imitate and follow his ways. And he's threatened to, uh, he's threatened those who are puffed up against him because he hasn't come, you know, back for a number of years. Uh, and though he can't come in person, he's learned, reliably learned, of a case of incest in the church that calls for his presence. So he's going to let this letter uh, um, take the place of his presence. Uh, he's going to say, I'm there in spirit, and you better pay attention to what I say, he says. So uh, this is an expression, this chapter is an expression of apostolic authority. And Paul is calling on them to conform to what he says, his ways. Let's look at that. The first problem here is immorality in the church. <clears throat> and that's the problem we'll see of incest, a case of incest that the church has known about and not done anything about. Well, First of all, the twofold sin. There's the sin of incest itself, and there's the sin of the church. The first of all is the sin of the man. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. I say the two sides of the problem are expressed in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 indicates the nature of the sin itself. That's a serious problem. But verse 2 indicates the more serious problem, the church's failure to deal with the sin in the church. Paul begins with an expression of shock. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The shock lies in the fact that there is sexual immorality but they are taking no action. I say in this instance, the problem is not just sexual immorality in general. So this word sexual immorality is just a general word for all kinds of immoral sexual behavior. But the form of sexual immorality they are tolerating is a kind that was not condoned even among the pagans, Paul says, whose standards were not otherwise that high. A man sleeping with his father's wife. So the problem is incest, a man taking a wife of his father other than his own mother and living with her sexually in an ongoing relationship. Now incest was condemned, you know, by, in the pagan world. Here's a man by the name of Gaius. Uh, Gaius is one of the most famous Roman jurists, uh, judges, lawyers. He writes in 161, It's illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister. Neither can I marry her who has been my mother-in-law. That's the case we have here. Or stepmother. Um, so incest was condemned in Roman culture and Greek culture. Um, it's also condemned in the Old Testament, remember? Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. 
that is, who's not your mother, your stepmother, that would dishonor your father. Um, I say the fact that the woman herself is not mentioned, I think pretty clearly demonstrates that only the man was a member of the Corinthian church. So Paul says nothing about the woman who he's sleeping with in a sexual relationship, and so obviously she's not a member of the church. The church can't do anything about that situation. So that's the sin of the man, and we have the sin of the church, verse 2. And you are proud, amazingly. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? While it's a problem how anyone in the church could have committed incest, the greater problem for Paul is the fact that the sin in their midst, the Corinthians, are proud of it. They're proud in spite of the sin. Uh, <laughs> so they're a proud in spite of this illicit relationship. Uh, Paul has mentioned their pride, their arrogance before, remember, many through this epistle. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of saying, don't go beyond what's written, when then you will not be puffed up. Verse 18, for some of you are arrogant. And later on, then I will find out how those arrogant people, so they're proud, they're arrogant. And so apparently this pride, this arrogance has blinded them both to the their Christian brother, professing Christian's condition, and to their own condition. Um, rather than demonstrating pride, they should have been filled with grief, and they should have put this man out of the church. Now, it's difficult, <laughs> it seems rather difficult to explain the church's attitude to this situation. Uh, now, on the one hand, we know that religions in the Greco-Roman world did not normally affect moral behavior, particularly. Uh, religions, you know, there was a pretty immoral society. Religion didn't particularly make people that moral. Um, and so, in that case, new converts, I'm trying to explain this incest. <laughs> so, you know, a new convert would not necessarily understand that what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, that's true. I'm saying that, but I'm just saying that uh, their religion did not, you know, they, did, they had, did a lot of immoral things. They didn't do that. That's right. They didn't normally do that. Not saying they didn't, but it was condemned in the society. But all kinds of immorality took place, you know. Okay, not incest primarily, but a lot of kind of immorality took place. And because you were a religious person, you went to the temple, it didn't really affect, yeah, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really affect your situation. And we have that, we're having that same problem now in our culture, you know. We have people who come to our church. They're very, they're very interested in our church, you know. They may get saved. But this man and woman are living together and they don't even know it's wrong, you know. Now, I grew up in the 50s. I can't, you know, nobody would have thought that, you know, when I grew up, you know. 
but not today. I mean, you know, I talk to people all the time out in the world. And if you said that you're not going to have sex with the person you're married to before you're married, they would think you're really nuts. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You, you mean you're not going to have sex with the person you're going to be married to for the rest of your life? You're not, you're not going to try it out? They would think that's just crazy. That's just dumb. And everything in their society tells them it's dumb. There's nobody saying you shouldn't do that. They're saying you should do it. <laughs> and you're stupid if you don't. And so what I'm saying is uh, that's, what, that's what a pagan would think in that day, too. We're, th we're seeing the same thing come back, but, you know, Sexual, what I'm saying is sexual morality was not frowned upon in that sense. So maybe it's not as crazy as we think of it. I'm just trying to give it. But I think the real reason that what's going on here, and this is just a hypothesis, is that I think the reason this man's sin was ignored was two reasons. First of all, he's a man. That makes a lot of difference. <laughs> he's a male. Uh, men in the culture could have sexual relationships outside of marriage. That was fully acceptable for a man to go to the prostitutes. That'll come up in chapter 6, as we'll see it. There was no condemnation of that. No one expected a man to be faithful to his wife in that society. Uh, now, this freedom didn't normally apply to incest. It didn't normally apply to adultery, having sex with another man's woman. Now, you could if she was a, man, a, a low birth or any slave or anything like that, of course. But I think what may be going on here is this is probably a man uh, who possessed clout in the community. I mean, I think that's a real possibility, and many people think that, you know, this man may have been a man of wealth, a man of responsibility, a person of clout, and so the tendency would be to let that thing go on, not, you know, that, that could explain. I'm trying, to, I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to explain a difficult situation. Why would this case of incest not have been dealt with in the church? And I'm just thinking of, we're thinking of reasons here because, first of all, they were so sexual promiscuous that sexual morality was accepted in a lot of cases. But in this case, they may have overlooked a lot of it because this was a man who was maybe wealthy or prominent, position of power, something like that, a leader, that might be a possibility as to what is going on here. We don't really know. And we know it's true. It's just, it is hard to explain here. And so Paul will go on here to issue a corrective. What are we going to do about this? And he says, we're going to exercise, you should exercise church discipline. But I'm going to exercise some discipline and stop here. <laughs> at 8.14 and 20 seconds. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> thanks for sticking with me tonight, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week.